Welcome to the No-Till Farmer Podcast, brought to you today by Biotill Cover Crop Seed. I'm Brian O'Connor, Lead Content Editor for No-Till Farmer. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes when they are released. I'd like to take a moment to thank BioTill Cover Crop Seeds for sponsoring today's episode. BioTill Cover Crops, a pioneer and leader in cover crop seed, represents a complete lineup of seeds suitable to a wide range of soil types and growing conditions. BioTill Cover Crop vendors are committed to your success and provide local resources, education, guidance, and all the tips and tricks we know to ensure your plantings have the correct foundations for success. The original producers of Bounty Annual Ryegrass, Biotill Cover Crops continues to add new and improved cover crop and forage varieties, including Enricher Radish, Bayou Kale, Shield Broadleaf Mustard, African Forage Cabbage, and Mihi Persian Clover. With over 30 years of experience in production, processing, packaging, and shipping, you won't be able to find a better fit for your farm anywhere else. Learn more at biotill.com. That's B-I-O-T-I-L-L.com. For this episode of the No-Till Farmer podcast, we're headed to Cajun country for a talk with fourth-generation farmer Justin Fusilier. Corn and soybean operations dominate most of our readership here at No-Till Farmer, according to our benchmark survey. But Justin stumbled onto something he thinks holds promise in Louisiana, where crops like rice and sugarcane are far more common. But first, a few notes. Justin's way into grazing and livestock. His start with chickens, for example, stems in part from traditional Mardi Gras. Unlike the parades, crews, and floats of the New Orleans Mardi Gras, traditional Mardi Gras involves roving bands of revelers going from house to house to collect alms for Lent. Justin was part of one such band, and at a house, the owner released a rooster as an alm. Justin captured the rooster early in the day and carried it with him, sharing his beer and food. That beer-swilling party rooster was the start of his chicken flock. Justin also politely declines from attempting a difficult name at one point during our conversation. He's referring to the book One Straw Revolution by Masanobu Fukuoka. At another point during our conversation, Justin refers to a Google map of the Cajun prairie. You can find a duplicate of his map at www.notillfarmer.com by going to the multimedia tab and scrolling to the No-Till Farmer podcast. Let's get into it with Justin Fusilier of Eunice, Louisiana. We had uh, started in, in early 2000 planting. So, so all this area of Acadiana, I can probably show you on a map just for reference, was a coastal prairie complex which dotted all along the Gulf Coast was, was different prairie complexes. Can you explain what you mean by a prairie complex? Just because well, I don't... Tall grass prairie, just okay. like in the Midwest. Got it. So so you see the lighted, light the triangle shape? The triangle shape right. thing? Okay. There, and then it, it ran all the way to just about Corpus Christi. Yeah. No, I noticed there was a big geography change. Like, at one point, I think roundabouts when I cl- crossed the Atchafalaya or thereabout, like... It transitioned from kind of swampy, bayou-y type things into the, this kind of bigger, flatter. So anyway, it, you, you would have crossed a 20-mile-long bridge over the, the basin, which was uh, 
from what I understand, what I was told was during glacial melt, mm -hmm. basically just west from Lafayette all the way to just about Baton Rouge, where, where the, 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 the basin started, I guess, you know, that Twin Malone Bridge was would have been caused by a water flow. Mississippi was that yeah. at that time, right? During glacial melting and stuff. And now it's condensed to the size of Mississippi and all that's old flood plain left over. The Chafalaya is a split from the Mississippi and they kind of, uh, it kind of takes the west boundary of the basin area. But all of it is prone to flooding, yeah. and, you know, high water events and stuff. Yeah, but once you get just, just like you said, from Lafayette on, you hit that, that complex, which was deemed the, the Cajun Prairie. They say as little as like 0.1 of 1% is, is remaining of that original grassland, just for the fact that it was tillable land. Yeah. It was rich land, a lot of it in the rice production. You see it now in crawfish production. Yeah. So, so it, uh, I went to school for horticulture. I finished in early 2000. We had uh, some farmers that had leased our farm. So my family was out of farming at the time. The family had leased it for yeah, 20 years or more, but they had broke up their operation, dissolved, what have you. So the land fell back in our hands. So we leased out the crop acreage and uh, we had the pasture land that said, why, you know, why don't we get back into cows and stuff? Because my grandfather was a cattleman, all this good stuff. Anyway. How many generations going back? Um, well, I would be, my great grandfather acquired the farm. Okay. And, so that's uh, at least four, in right? Thirties, I think. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So we had, we just bought a handful of cows and have a little, whole lot of capital invest and, and, uh, Dad, dad started doing bird hunts because he's always into upland game herd, uh, hunting and training dogs and pointers and stuff. So he said, well, I started doing some guided hunts on the remaining pasture. So we started doing that and his adapter was pretty simple. Just to let the grass grow, cut nice little walking paths through, you know, meandering paths and, and, uh, and, and do the guided hunts. Well, I had uh, some professors at the time that were kind of on this pioneer voyage. They, they had actually started in the 80s, and one, one of the professors that lives near us that come in through this, did it there at his place. So anyway, we got to know him over the years. He had kind of taught me at the, the local level college and um, you know introduced us to the concept. So dad started asking, he said, hey, why don't we plant some of these prairie plants that we learned about? And, and you know, maybe it'll hold birds and make a prettier hunt, more wildflowers and stuff. That's how it started, right? Mm -hmm. So we started planting some of our pasture land that wasn't being utilized for, for, for grazing into this prairie, restoring, you know, this prairie. And um, it was really neat because as we began to learn about it and, you know, going down that path, we, we said, hey, there's some high value grasses here, Indian grass, gamma grass, witchgrass, you know, big blue stem, little blue stem, all these things that are higher value forest and say the Bahia grass that's been introduced and kind of taken over all our, our pastures and our Bermuda and stuff like that. And so we were like, well, why don't we graze this stuff? So, well, we started learning these perennial grasses. You can't do set stock grazing. And then we stumbled upon the the, the South African people like Alan Savory mm -hmm. and Johann Zietzman that were doing this, these high density grazing, mimicking these migrational patterns of these moves and how the grasslands with the with the, 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 the pulse cycles, you know, the, the graze rest cycles, the, these perennial grasses could flourish. And that was the environment that they co-involved with, with the grazing animal stuff. So that really kind of began to change our whole paradigm in the thinking about agriculture. We started realizing soil health, how to use these grasses in our cattle production. Then we started looking at our cattle genetics, realizing that there was a difference between grass cattle genetics, you know, feedlot cattle genetics. And we started, everything started shifting over. Then we got interested in producing grass-fed beef and stuff. So as the years uh, progressed and we, we developed our systems, 
you know, I talking with Brennan, I met Brennan uh, and stuff. And, and uh, we were like, man, you know, we really want to produce some, I mean, it's organic. I'm not late. I'm not an organic certification deal. Mm -hmm. So it's, I call it regeneratively grown, but it's like, Hey man, we'll do some organic rice. I'm like, I'm with you and stuff like that. But I had been, uh, at this point I was planting cover crops and, and, and to grass finish my cattle on in the fall. So I take a two year old steer and, and just, just as he's, say passing 24 months at his, at his calf date of, uh, in May sometime. Mm -hmm. And then if I could take him at that point and, and I drain sad crawfish till June, mm -hmm. drain my fields when I drain it. So that means in July, end of July, I'm dry with a pretty much a slick field because yeah. crawfish annihilate everything. It was just pretty much a mud flat, a little light, uh, scratch and overseed with cover crop. Let it come up. I mean, as short as 25, 30 days, I could be on it grazing and, and graze it until the fall, you know, with some steers and grass finish out some steers. And mm -hmm. then there's my grass fed meat. What do you use for covers? Dude, I've, I've experimented with a little bit of everything, but sun hemp has been really good. Any sorghums have been really great. Cow peas have been great for me. Uh, buckwheat has mm -hmm. been a good one. Sunflowers have been kind of hit and miss for me. I've seen sunflowers do real well. Like we have some up in Dodge County, Wisconsin, where I went to high school and for all intents and purposes grew up. Uh, and then in dry, like Kansas and that, I've seen sunflowers. I don't understand it. Like I've, I've planted them and, and had them do fine. And then I've tried like two years in a row, they fail, you know. But I don't know. But I mean, I try to stay really diverse. I try to try to have at least seven or eight species. I'm trying to get like, you know, Three types of grasses, three types of legumes, three types of broadleaf. But okra, I've thrown okra. It's done okay. Um, but really, I mean, I, I'm, I'm still experimenting, experimenting mode, you know, and, and just, just kind of, hey, let's just try. You know, if it sounds somewhat reasonable, we throw it in there. And the more diverse, the better, you know, is, is what I'm going for. But so I had been grass finishing, okay. And um, man, we had two wet years back to back. And my cover crops, I'd plant them and they'd rot out. I didn't really have much. And, and then kind of with the, it kind of coincided with the cold. I couldn't get processed dates anyway for my animals. It was all bottlenecked and screwed up and crop failures. And I was just like, you know what? I said, I'm going to go to the typical rate of rice around here is about 100 pounds to the acre. Mm -hmm. uh, I said, I'm going to do 50% rice on this cover crop. And uh, the remaining 50% of room, I'm going to throw in the, the diverse cover crop that way if it goes to raining like it's been well at least the rice can come up and grow i have something i could graze you know yeah and um and and so i figure or if it stays dry when other stuff kicks in but it's kind of a balance is, is what i was going for so i found some medium grain rice jupiter and um it wasn't treated and all that because again we hadn't since, since we had started kind of let's say for probably 15 years plus now we haven't used any synthetic fertilizers or anything we just we're not going to do it you know it's a uh, in our production, which is really, you know, I've been using like, yeah, I have used chicken litter and stuff in the fields and or compost application. That's not really reasonable on a large scale. Back to the rice. So, so I said, okay, well, we're going to do the rice and, and the cover crop plant it. And uh, lo and behold, typical cover crop scenario comes up. Uh, army worms hit it, knock it back. It got wet. The rice flat sedge jumped up. <laughs> it, it looked like all I had, you know, even because I, 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 I had a dual use for it. I, I would graze it. I could get off of it and generally it could regenerate enough to have enough stubble or residue left over to flood up and then crawfish again. Yeah. You know, so it kind of, I could graze it and then crawfish the stubble. And that's the, the, the you know, perfect scenario of everything working out. Well, anyway, 
it, it, it again, it got wet. The little bit of rice that did germinate at 50 pounds per acre wasn't that beautiful. It was lost in the rice flats edge. Army worms hit it, just about knocked all the rice down. Pretty much at the end of that, kind of in, going into the fall, it looked like I had stunted rice flats edge. It wasn't pretty. It was brown. It was ugly. A little bit of cover crop showing through, but I was just like, man, total failure, you know? So I called my buddy Jody and uh, Satig, who's a rice farmer not far from it. He was also experimenting like I am. And uh, yeah, I said, dude, I said, this, I'm not going to have anything to flood for crawfish. I'm flooding some weeds. And I was like, it's, it's going to be terrible for me. You know? So I said, but I'm going to go ahead and flood up the field. I flooded up. I brought a light flood. Well, just previous to that season, between seasons, I had did some major levee work, uh, built up some permanent levees with dozers and stuff like that. And the, 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 the childbearing or mother crawfish, when they go dormant and bury into the ground, they generally do it at the water's edge. So that's on your leverage, right? Mm -hmm. The males will just go down kind of anywhere. But they kind of go down at, at, when it's time for them to, to go down and, and, and hibernate, I guess they normally do it at the, at the water's edge. So that targets your levee system. So it's always been understood that if you have to manipulate your levees, you're probably wiping out your, your next generation of crawfish. So I knew, haven't had done that, that there was a chance I wouldn't have crawfish anyway. So I wasn't overly bummed. I didn't have any stubble, much stubble left, but being as it may, I brought up a flood early in the spring. I put out my traps, ran them for a couple of weeks, didn't have anything, any signals of it going to be a decent season. So I pulled those traps out and put them in another field. That was not this past winter, winter before. We had one of our most record cold winters ever. I mean, we, we stayed like a week sub-freezing uh, temperatures that never happens. And, I mean, everything was burnt back. So I'm talking like in the spring, my fields looked like water. Yeah. There was nothing. Okay. Well, lo and behold, you know, come this time of year, March stuff, I start to see a little bit of green <laughs> popping up. And the rice just came on through. So like, I mean, when the water was clear, because I didn't have really any crawfish activity and stuff, and I could see the rice plants under the water, but they had all got burnt back at that water's edge. And, um, they came up, you know, and, and the rice came up really clean and it made a heck of a stand. And yeah. look, I never applied anything to it. I just I let it go. I was like, Man, look at this, you know, <laughs> it, 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 uh, you know, it, it matured along with the rest of them. It looked fairly dense, you know, at 50 pounds. I guess those plants really tillered a lot, you know, and it headed out beautiful. Now, in the meantime, I had called Brennan. I said, Brennan, check this out, dude. I was like, I made a rice crop kind of in a, our plan. So my plan was that spring to plant my rice crop, but where I was, I didn't have to plant it. It carried over, you know? Yeah. I is said, rice normally perennial like that or is it an annual plant? I'm not going to say if I know it's truly a perennial or not, but this, so I think what Brennan told me and he said, Justin, he said, dude, you, you stumbled upon I'm going to butcher the name. I'm not even going to attempt it. But One Straw Revolution is mm -hmm. a book. Have you read it? I have not. Okay. So he's a Japanese guy that wrote a book about called the One Straw Revolution. And he talks about he, natural forming systems such as rice and stuff. And he, this guy was born on a, uh, a citrus farm, um, was conventional, went to university, got his degree, PhD, was doing research in citrus with, with fungus, even breeding fungus and stuff. And pathogenic funguses and anyway and he just kind of went through this re uh, re revelation that like man you know just seeing like where like he said he said Japanese agriculture is really pretty it was seasonal you know certain crops followed other crops timing of the year people ate their traditional dishes and all this changed with the advent after World War II and everybody wanted to be like America and he was you know 
chemical fertilization and stuff. And, you know, everything started changing and, and he saw the health of the land and the plants and everything deteriorating around him as he's in university learning and studying and stuff. And he's like, something right. So he had this big re revelation that, that, you know, uh, insights that, and it's pretty interesting how that goes on. But anyway, but, you know, he took, for instance, like rice, and he began realizing that anytime you create imbalance in nature, nature is going to try to fill it. And whether she expresses herself as a disease or anything else, she doesn't care. She just wants to promote life. And she'll come in and, and fill any void or imbalance, you know, and it may not be pretty to us, but it's it's life to nature, you know, whatever. And so he started looking at rice and rice in the wild. There's a term, vivipary. Mm. So, um, Okay, now I remember learning this term in school, and it's important because it, it's relevant here. Vivipary, V-I-V-I-P-A-R-Y. So that's the ability of a seed to to ripen without like like uh, going through a curing phase. I guess it could ripen on the plant. Mm -hmm. Rice has been infamous for like if it lodges and it's still on the head of the plant, if you got to get it up or cut, cut it quick because it germinate on the plant and it's no wow. value. You okay. know, it's, it becomes like a greens yeah, whatever you yeah. uh sprouts but uh so anyway he uh he said you know rice is one of these seeds that when it hits the ground it's going to germinate so he said if we look at rice in nature he said rice is going to you know grow in the spring what have you head out drop its seed its seed germinates and stays in an infant state kind of because it's usually in the, at an understory phase at that point. Mm -hmm. It's very frost tolerant, very cold tolerant, but it kind of lives there. It kind of sits there in some marginal environment. And then in the winter happens, kind of eliminates the competition. And then spring comes, guess what? It's ready to go. And it's got a jump start on everything. And, and, and then that cycle repeats itself. He said, we take that rice. One thing he said, we're doing absolutely wrong. We're planting it in the spring. It was never meant to be planted in spring. It needs that kindergartner phase or a teenage phase to develop all its root associations. It is highly mycorrhizal, mm -hmm. so it needs to develop those associations. So, I mean, it could, you know, minus nutrients and take care of itself and, and stuff like that. But he was like, you know, we violate all that when we're growing it in the spring. So already we're asking it to complete, mature, do its whole life cycle and defend itself when it's it's never had time to get established. And he was like, that's, that's violation number one type thing. Mm -hmm. Then with the nitrogen fertilizations and all the stuff we're putting in, you know, chemical fur tillage, disruption of the plant, uh, soil ecosystem, stuff like that. It, it you know, furthers all the other issues that come with it. But so anyway, and so Brennan had told me, he said, Justin, you stumbled upon that same method that he talks in that book. <laughs> so I got the book and read it. I was like, holy hell, this is cool. You know, I was like, and um, so, I mean, and now it kind of makes perfect sense. But like, you know, I kind of, even prior to that, like I was always thinking like, okay, we weren't using chemical fertilizers, but you know, man, I could, I could compost and, I can do this stuff, but even that causes imbalances. You know, if you're going to compost, you want to make sure you do it well before you crop and everything has time to level out, you know, because if you do it while the crop, you you know, especially if you have a monocrop or something out there and you, you go and just throw this big nutrient imbalance out there, you're going to make yourself susceptible to this. Or like when that, the fourth leaf is higher than the first three, you know, you had this, this, tier growth that's on your way to yield the most, you know, all, all these little, you know, general rules that were being developed at the time in the rice industry. And he was seeing that like when he would apply, like in the natural way, he wouldn't, he wouldn't show those same expressions, but at the same time would yield as much, if not more, you know, grains per acre or whatever, grains per head, higher, 
you know, would yield uh, as much. And when he would say add enough compost or do stuff to get those mimic those growth phases and stuff, then he would have imbalance and disease would strike him that further down the path, you know. So um, he even got so much to say that, like, you know, when it comes to like adding nutrition to his field, being very like that, he he would only go with like rice straw a little bit and put out, you know, let that break down well before he plants crop, just not to, you know. But understanding again the natural stuff, so he went back to the citrus farm in the book. It's really interesting, and uh, just talking about even as much as pruning the citrus trees improperly, kind of violating the natural form, would make them insect prone and stuff. So he really developed these gardens that are highly diverse, and you know, understanding diversity and balance, and just just uh, towards the end of his life, he you know he he kind of kind of lived up in the mountains, looked like that traditional Japanese guy, the long white beard, real cool looking, and up. <laughs> I mean, people would come and stay in, in, in his huts and to learn his farming methods. And, and you know, it kind of got more famous after he died sort of mm-hmm. thing than when he was alive. Some people thought he's kind of fool. But, um, but anyway, long story short, that's the method we stumbled upon. Okay. And that's what happened. I haven't replicated it. So I can't, I'm, I'm, ner- I'm not yet ready to stand on a soapbox and say, hey, this is, this is, but I, I think I understand, you know, the, the principles of what's happening here and, and, Hopefully that's what we're seeing take take place, you know. Now on the other hand, I have a buddy down the road, Jody. We've been talking this talk cover crops for a while now, and he is a I mean he, he he's sheerly you know rice crawfish farmer. This is what he does, and uh, he's been cover cropping and no tilling for about I'd say probably going on five years now. And one of the I guarantee he's at least three years ahead of any conventional farmers around here in the rice that in this area that that are even thinking cover crops you, you know what i mean and uh, now it's there's some programs in play and a lot of farmers are doing it i don't, I don't know if they completely have a full understanding at this point of what they're doing but uh you know he uh i called him this morning to say children and by the way you know this guy's coming do this interview and stuff i said but really should be talking to you you know you <laughs> you yeah uh, but he he said he has some fields of mustard stuff he just drilled in some rice and stuff we'd be welcome to you go out there, I can send you that way, you know, if you want to talk to him too. But uh cool. But yeah, so at this point in the program, I did get me a no-till drill finally. Mm-hmm. So now I could truly go no-till, you know, and uh what uh what equipment did you get? I got a little plantivator. Okay. It's uh it's made somewhat locally in Folsom, Louisiana. It's uh the company's been around though twenty years or so and uh it's it's uh I guess more of a true like it's a men till it's it's made to also drill into established sod, so it kinda Cuts a little two inch wide strip, kind of peels it out. Mm-hmm. It has a little spade that, that kind of scrapes the sidewalls and put down a little seed layer and drops a seed and another little spade that covers it. And closer. So, mm-hmm. so you left with a little like two two inch depression, you know, mm-hmm. and a little dirt on the sides. But I mean, it's a foot spacing on the time. So, so uh, you know, everything within that foot didn't get disturbed. And uh, but I guess it'd be more of a true minimal till because it, uh, like I said, if you're planting into a sod, established sod or pasture, you're gonna have to create some sort of little seed bed, you know, generally, or eliminate that competition for that moment so that seedling can get up. You know, mm-hmm. that's kind of really what it's designed to. But so. kind of like the old coulters that they used to have on, like no proper no-till uh, implements had coulters on the front that would part the dig out like a, a little V gauge basically, and then you'd have your seed and then a closer that would kind of. That, that's, yeah, essentially what I was doing. And, uh, but I mean, you know, that's it. So, so like right now 
I, I will attempt a little bit of a, of a spring rice crop, but I really, without using herbicides and, and stuff, I, I think it would be a hard game to play to establish this rice, say in the spring, I need to keep it dry for a while so it could establish some, some mycorrhizal associations. Uh, I have, I am inoculating the seed uh, with, with mycorrhizal inoculants and, and a few other products. Uh, what products do you use? Well, I, did, the, I have a product called Bio 800 okay. by Hoganics. It's, mm -hmm. it's, um, he said they, uh, they DNA test it and it shows 800 different species of everything, you know, from bacteria to fungus to some protozoa and uh, nematode type stuff. But, mm -hmm. uh, I have that, um, I, I, I make my own little compost teas. Now, something new we're gonna try this year, I'm making some fish amino acid mm. for a uh, for the nitrogen source and to, to use, like right now, this acreage where I grew the rice on, as you pull out and look to the right, there's a, there's ryegrass in it right now. Okay. Now we had a drought this winter, so it's sat there and it's, it, it's mostly stayed gray and about this tall. We just started getting a little bit of rain, and uh, it is, it's really a rare thing to have a drought in the winter. Like I've never seen it in my life. But uh, we, uh, so I'm, I'm going to be putting out some of that fish amino acid on that to try to get going. But I'm, I'm kind of hoping that this is a non-inorganic form of nitrogen. So this is a uh, fish broken down to amino acid form. So it's nitrogen bound by carbons. Roughly should be a 30 to one ratio carbons and nitrogen. So when we put it out. We're not just just asking the biology, hey, here's the nitrogen, consume all the carbon around you. We're going to be putting it out in a form that it's kind of like a food packet. You know, yeah. you know, it can feed the plant and any biology that gets a hold of it, which well, right there, you don't have to go exasperate the carbon. So it's it's uh, it won't have the detrimental effects of inorganic in going into the system. So that's our first opportunity in 15 plus years to have a nitrogen source. And there's something kind of new we learned about. We're able to recycle our fish heads out of our crawfish trap when we replace the fish, which we do every time we run, and to potentially turn that into our fertilizer for our field. Yeah. And spray it foliarly. We'll get back to my discussion with Justin in a moment. But I want to take time, once again, to thank our sponsor, BioTill Cover Crop Seed, for supporting today's episode. BioTill Cover Crops, a pioneer and leader in cover crop seed, represents a complete lineup of seeds suitable to a wide range of soil types and growing conditions. BioTill Cover Crop vendors are committed to your success and provide local resources, education, and guidance for all the tips and tricks we know to ensure your plantings have the correct foundations for success. The original producers of Bounty Annual Ryegrass BioTill Cover Crops continues to add new and improved cover crop and forage varieties, including Enricher Radish, Bayou Kale, Shield Broadleaf Mustard, African Forage Cabbage, and Mihi Persian Clover. With over 30 years of experience in production, processing, packaging, and shipping, you won't be able to find a better fit for your farm anywhere else. Learn more at BioTill.com. That's B-I-O-T-I-L-L. Dot com. And now, back to the podcast. I don't know how familiar you are with No-Till and, and our other the company, uh, publication, Strip-Till. We, we have mostly uh, corn and beans farmers that, that are our subscribers. It's a completely different ecosystem. So 
was wondering if you could just briefly take me through, <laughs> and I know it's a huge subject, but if you could just briefly take me to like the different stages of typical rice cultivation and then kind of explain a little bit how you're, the system that you stumbled onto. I, I know you were pretty clear you didn't do anything with it. You just kind of planted it, saw it die, or thought, thought it was gone and then watched it come back really right. strong the next year. But what what is the, what is the typical rice pattern that we see? Okay. You, you start with flooding the fields, basically. Sure. So okay. so let's start. Let's back up to the fall of okay. the year. Okay. So um, let's uh, it, it used to recycle soybeans, rice and soybeans, rice and soybeans, but but crawfish has really taken over. So it'd be rice, the stubble utilized to do crawfish. The crawfish should be drained in let's say June, July. So you drain the rice and then it, they need to, uh, or crawfish, then, then they need to work up the fields in the fall. They, uh, they plow everything up. It's uh, bare fields. They pull the levees then in the fall generally. That way they have all winter to kind of cure and pack. And in the spring when they do flood up, it's, uh, you know, the levees are firm. They, if, they, if they do it too quick, they're prone to bust out, you know, and things like that. And I think I want to just make sure I'm describing the right thing. Um, when I'm driving through the field, I'm seeing right now I see the ones that are, some of them are flooded already. Like there's some with water in them, but basically the levees are like the little tiny berms that hold the water in place. That's right. right. Okay. That's right. And um, it's, it's really a shame that that field from the late summer fall is made bare and left bare all winter long. Now, generally by the end of winter, you have a little green cover from some little, you know, annual poa or some kind of little little winter grass or something, you know, little little tender winter grass. But that'll get burned down. And uh, by design, yeah. Okay. But they, well, they'll burn it down chemically, mm -hmm. and then come in and 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 uh, till, dr drill in the, the the rice seed. Okay. That's one way. Another way is the water plant, which used to be the traditional way. You don't see it so much, but but typically, same sort of thing. They would work the field and 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 and, but then uh, and prepped it. Then in the spring, they would put a light flood on it, drag some water levels through it, okay, and it just turned everything to a mushy silt kind of, you know, and just just let gravity kind of, and, and then cut the water out and let gravity settle everything back down. Uh, Right before they would have cut the water, they would have threw, flew the seed in. Mm -hmm. Seed would have sank, hit the, the bed, you know, kind of semi-buried wow. itself. When they drain it out, then the seed would germinate, all right? But either way, you, we had the same point. We have a germinated rice plant, right. you know, whether they did it dry or they did it water level, water planted. Um, so rice, rice, they could plant rice pretty early. It's pretty frost tolerant. A lot of farmers have planted already or in process of planting. Um, and... Um, as soon as they get a little stand on it, they'll 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 uh, put out their pre-emergence and what have you, and basic fertilizers, and uh, and and that flood will be maintained from that point on. That that crop will mature sometime in August, I mm -hmm. think, late August. They'll they'll uh, they'll cut their first crop, and then if they're going to second crop it, only usually if they're not going into crawfish production, they'll do that sometime in probably November, late October, November. Now, for the, the harvest, do they drain everything dry and come with a conventional tractor? Or what kind of implements do you use to harvest rice? So they drain it. Uh, they, they, they drain the water. And a couple of weeks prior to, to coming in and cut, they come in with uh, combines. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a typical combine with, with a, kind of like a wheat header, I guess, you know. If you know. Yeah. And um, they, they cut the rice and, and then load it into carts, pulled by tractors, carts, take it to the silos, dry it down. Typical of like a, any other grass crop like uh, say corn for example yes sir. okay yes, sir. 
Um, so then your method, you know, admittedly was a little kind of accidental. How would you take no-till principles or minimum soil principles and cover crops and that kind of thing? How do you implement that into that cycle? Okay, so uh, I think I think two things are key. Is that when I plant in the fall, we, we have a, a lot of trouble with hornyworms, mm -hmm. which is, in my, my opinion, uh, exasperated by two issues. Nitrogen fertilization and monocrop scenario. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? So... <clears throat> I want to uh, I want to plant the rice. I'm going to maintain about 50 pounds per acre. I'm going to plant in a very diverse setting. Okay, so we're going to do it in a, in a cover crop scenario. Now, I learned a couple of things about rice in in this process. Mm -hmm. That rice is uh it is mycorrhizal. There's a lot of peer reviewed literature out there. Find that information. That was a big question Jody and I had talking with one another. Man, are we even gaining anything trying to grow rice as aquatic crop in this you know soil health environment i mean it goes aquatic anyway right everything changes it seems different. like you would lose a lot to just run off and leach it and you know the cycle of water in and out exactly but they have studies that show even done right here in crowley which you probably turned in crowley and come up here yeah dr michael stout lsu is doing some of the research here and i called him about what had happened with this and uh but on mycorrhizal associations, and they're showing that, okay, mycorrhizal association will happen in, when it's dry, when the plant's establishing, under inundation, it will maintain its mycorrhizal association, but it doesn't, the colony doesn't really seem to grow or that expand any, any further, you know, but that uh, there's a term for plants that can pump oxygen to their roots. Most marginal plants are able to do it. Rice can do it. It's, it's an A word. Aerobic? Uh, no, like uh, some kind of specialized cell, that, okay. that, 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 the, the name of the cell structure, it pushes oxygen to roots. Rice do that, and they think that's how it can maintain that, that mycorrhizal in the root zone. Oh, that's interesting. It is interesting. But that's a big part of, and, and mycorrhizal does what? It, it gets phosphorus, gets zinc. Mm -hmm. That's two two uh, things that, that, I mean, zinc's a big deal on rice plants. They always apply zinc with their basic fertilizer packages, okay? But uh, without mycorrhizal there, you're probably not going to mine it out of the soil. Right. You know, but uh, so so my whole angle, I guess, is, is really going to be centered around inoculating the seed, getting untreated seed because it all comes treated with uh, insecticide, neonicotinoids, and um, and uh, fungicide. You know, but get away from that. Go back to some some bare seed. Uh, treat it, plant it with the diversity. Let it come up in the fall and keep it dry. Let it grow. Let it let it form its associations. Let it not be the center species on the stage at the moment. Let it be in the mix with, with all the other groups of plants and, and let it get as much of an association network as it can. Now, I don't have the luxury of using herbicides to get rid of my weeds, but winter serves as that filter, you know. And in the fall, I mean, that's when a marginal plant in my area with rising water tables would, would experience flood anyway. I mean, that's a natural cycle around here, small plant, you know. Yeah. And uh, so, so I mean, I, I, I simply stop up my weirs, let the winter rains bring flood. If not, I could pump, but you know what I'm saying, bring a light flood. But at some point, before we really start getting too cold and doing major crown damage or something, I need to get water on that plant to protect it, to insulate it, you know. Mm -hmm. But any of those dryland species that would have germinated with it, I don't think are, are, are they as cold tolerant and or as flood tolerant or, you know, uh, so are aquatic by nature that they're going to persist past, you know, on into the spring, like rice proved it can and will, you know. And uh, I think at that point, another thing, you, you, 
I never did apply nitrogen to this, and and it it, it yielded just fine. And um, if if there's research that shows that 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 typically what cycling nitrogen in an aquatic environment is an actino, actinomycete, or it's 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 what they've mistaken for bacteria in the earlier 1900s, yeah. where it looks just like them, but it's a more primitive form. It's actually its own kingdom. Mm-hmm. Actinomycetes, I think, is a proper. Okay. I think it's what's called. It's actually not a bacteria at all, but it's it's it's, it's like some blue green algae fall into that category. But they actually fix nitrogen, just like the rhizobacteria that that fix nitrogen in legumes and stuff like that. They have the ability to do that. And in aquatic ecosystems, that's what's usually cycling nitrogen to the plants and stuff like that. So. I mean that that obviously something fed it the nitrogen, you know right. what I mean? Right. And um and and you know so I think like again just just getting that plant in a diversified environment, getting established, you know treating the seed may or may not be necessary. It depends probably on where you're at in your soil health program. But we're changing phases a lot. We're going from dry to wet, dry to wet. So mm-hmm. I want all the biology to have a chance. So I, and I'm still kind of under the presumption that maybe we do need to treat some seed at this time, you know, until we really got the ball rolling out here, you know. And uh, maybe down the road, no, you know, but give it every opportunity to, 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 to be as diversified of a ecosystem as it could have. Um, I'm going to now have no-till drill. Those cover crops will only go in via no-till now. You know, I mean, they're not going in with, even after after I get the clean field, say after crawfish production, I'm still going to drill it in at this point. There will be no more tillage on the farm, you know, unless we need to level something. But uh, shouldn't take place now. You no, know? why that decision? Did, was just the success of this particular program that convinced you? Or well, well, no, like uh, cheaper. Like, well, che- cheaper one, but also I mean for the soil, whole soil health aspect. I mean, we we you know our soils down here have been under rice production for, since the forties and fifties. I mean, and traditionally, before the, the 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 it was always water leveled and water planted. You know, mm-hmm. which is very disruptive and you flood it and just drain it all fast and leaving mud slicks you losing topsoil i mean we have very structuralist we've, we've reaped all of the consequences of severe tillage and commercial fertilization you know what i mean it's, it's i mean we are flat compacted hard our crawfish traps they have a little rod sticks out about seven eight inches a little 316 metal rod that runs all the way up to the handle so when you 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 when you stand that trap up you know you stick the rod in the ground and it it will uh it holds the trap up, kind of buries it, so the wind don't blow it over. So mm-hmm. kind of, kind of anchors uh, it. Anchors it. Thank you. And um, man, sometimes you can't even stab that rod, a three sixteen rod in a flooded field. Holy man, how's that for compaction? Yeah, that's pretty bad. That's pretty bad. And um, so, uh, I mean, we need to leave our soils alone. We need the the no till, and uh, we need constant green growing root in. We need structure back, and the only way to get that is to take out mechanically. Um, are there, and I've heard this is the case, especially, so Louisiana, number three for rice production nationwide, Arkansas, number one, California, the uppity agriculture state, number two. Um, was it wild grass that made it like, why is Louisiana, why is rice so successful here? I mean, you mentioned that flooding and the, the kind of in and out of water, rice is a very aquatic heavy plant or, or dependent plant. Is that kind of what made them? Was it, it was something that was important? Do you know anything about the history at all? Why? A little bit, but I don't know how accurate what I know is. It's kind of like hearsay, I guess. So mm-hmm. um, from what I understand, the first rice planted in Louisiana happened right there in Mowater, which is as a, about a 10, 8 to 10 miles of, you know, as a crow flies this way. You drove, you probably passed the Mowater store on Highway 13 coming up from Crowley. 
Sounds familiar. Yeah, by by that electrical plant right before you came in. Yeah, yeah, that little area is mow water, right? So mm -hmm. some of the the first rice in the state, from what I understand, was planted there. It was it was heavily uh, German communities mm. um, that that had had came here uh, in the, in this area, and it brought rice production with them, from what I understand. Um, the prairie was. Uh, at the time, and this is Dr. Malcolm B. Green, who's one of the, the prairie pioneers, him and Dr. Charles Allen, uh, who he has a book written on, on Louis, uh, Cajun prayer. There was a, uh, a, a I'm going to butcher it again, uh, some, it's a, it was a French word, plat, platane or something. It was shallow ponds that would tend to develop. They didn't know if it was wallows from animals or whatever, but there was a lot of, before it was plowed and leveled, there was a lot of little shallow ponds throughout the, the native prairie ecosystem. Good place for an alligator to hang out. That's it. <laughs> and uh, from what I understand, that the that was the first spot utilized by these German immigrants that knew about rice production, some way or another, had had some information that were planted in those shallow ponds. Oh. And that was the kind of birthplace of rice. But as far as like on a, you know agricultural, intentional agricultural scale, I think that happened there in Mowater, Louisiana, which. And then the Crowley Experimental Station, things migrated just a little bit south, and that that, that LSU. Experimental station right there in Crowley that's been there. It's a deep history, you know. It's, but that was the now other than just the natural landscape. So from what I understand, the the Mississippi Delta there was like I guess since glacial melt there was five known migrations, kind of and 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 that 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 Delta empty uh, and there's a name for each one. I remember learning in school, but I don't remember them now. One of them was Marigouin, which was a uh, like a, a mosquito French, but uh, it, it kind of, you know, Mississippi, if you can imagine, just kind of did this, right? Yeah. Towards the coast, you know, and uh, each of those five deltas, you know, would uh, you know, it just produce a lot of silt, clays, you know, fine particles, with, you know, right. during floods. With, and that really created the, the prairie ecosystem or that, that we're a prairie landscape that we're on here. So it was tight soils. It's great for holding water, you know, uh, and, and, uh, Growing grass, holding water. So I put up a levee, you know, see the flood and your water didn't drain out. So it's not, not deep sand, no really deep rock bed here. You know, we don't have that parent material. Yeah. It's just, it's just mud stacked up for years, you know? Um, What do you have for acres? What do you mean? What's the size of the, the, the cultivated uh, area, I guess? Okay. Uh, we have about 330 acres of, oh, wow. uh, of rice land. Yeah. Um, now, in a given year, half of it's in production, about 150 is in production, it rotates, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but well, I would imagine, too, that would be, especially if you're doing, talking about a really kind of bang-up harvest in the second year, having a part of it in the kind of pre-growth stage, you know, all that kind of alternation. Right. Now, now as far as what I've grown with my, my, this, this was done on five acres. Got it. Right. It, it hasn't. I mean, do, you this, think, do you think this will scale up, or...? Yeah, well, right. So, I mean, so this is this is very much a uh, form the table movement I have here, right? Mm -hmm. Right, because I, I, I mean, I mean, this is vertical integration, as they call it. From I mean, we're growing rice, and this is my end product that's getting sold on the shelf. Yeah, you know, so uh, we we custom milling it locally, and uh, with with the little custom meal lady has a, a custom meal not too far from us, and, and uh, so yeah, I mean. If, if I could replicate it, we're going to keep doing it. I mean, you know, it, it, I think there's definitely a demand for for this product, you know? Yeah. Especially with uh, consumer awareness where it is right it, now. It, you know, our response, 
we just started marketing it within the month actually we went through all the got all the oversights complete and we everything's legit and uh it took us from i mean from when we harvested it in september to, to now you know what i mean the, but we, we were there and uh response has been good so far so we'll see you know it's all kind of new yeah. what was the yield you know i, I won't lie to you because I, I don't know i don't have a yield monitor i hired a farmer to come with his combine mm -hmm. he I got about 8,000 acres, mm -hmm. I mean 8,000 pounds, it milled. I'm going to have to calculate that in bushels. <laughs> so barrels, rice barrels. Those barrels, ah, okay. 162 pounds per barrel. Oh wow. Okay. Now I did five acres, but probably had about three acres of rice um, altogether. So what's uh, 8,000 divided by 162 is 50, right at 50 barrels. Is that 50 pretty... divided by three, so that's 16 barrels an acre. That's okay. terrible. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, but most people are, are trying to yield around 50 barrels an acre of rice. You know, some people are getting a 45, really good, to go like 52, 53, maybe. Mm -hmm. I've heard of maybe some 55. But, you know, if you're doing 50, you're doing good. Yeah. You know? That's kind of your break-even right. kind of point. Now, back, my dad tells me when, when they were rice farming when he was young, you know, 25 barrels an acre was, wasn't 30 <laughs> barrels, wasn't bad. You know what I mean? Jeez. But they weren't putting anything in the ground either. Right. Hardly, you know, they, they, very little. But um, I tell you, you know, I would be tickled pink if I could replicate. Replicate that on 16, that, 16 that. barrels an acre. Yeah. Would, yeah. I, I'm fine because this has a, a, it's a lot, uh, you know, it's a niche. So yeah. it's, that's fine. Yeah. Also, I would imagine there's some benefit, right, in terms of reduced inputs on the, the cost side as well. That, that's right, you know. And I'm not look, you know, I, I'm gonna, uh, I'm, I'm not ready to go out and buy a combine or by any means, you, you, you know what I mean? And we're gonna have to keep outsourcing those those things to get it done. But I mean, I, I'm fine with uh, this, this year, I'm gonna plant in the fall to, to really produce well, more intentional on five acres. Mm -hmm. And I think I could probably Bring that 16 to probably about 25 with a little bit of effort. You know, 20, 25. Yeah. And um, with, with just being intentional with it. Uh, if I could do that on five acres, I'm good. You know, let's see what happens there, how we start moving the product, and then we'll scale up. Keep scaling up. Now, a lot, a lot of our readership is concentrated to the north of Louisiana um, and Arkansas. And like I said, those two big rice producing states. Um, do you think there are lessons to be taken here? There is, um, right now, as we speak, a man at Marquette University, where I graduated, uh, who's working on cold weather rice production. And he's convinced that they can do it further north because in Japan, they produce rice on the island of Hokkaido, uh, okay. which is up near, it's very, almost, almost Arctic. It's a very cold, uh, environment. Um, and so he's convinced that that's possible. Do you think there are lessons we can take from here or is do the hydrological, like is the terroir so unique to Louisiana that there, we'd have to start from scratch if we brought this further north? No, I think it could definitely be done. I really do. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. No. And that, that was one thing I like, I was ignorant too. I, I didn't realize either until I read, I read the book, One Straw Revolution. And he was talking about all the different rice varieties and doing my little bit of research, just trying to find out about, you know, mycorrhizal associations and, just different things. You know, rice is a worldwide crop. And it's mm -hmm. a big, very important crop. There's been a lot of research done around the world on all these. I didn't realize there were so many different varieties, types, big, tall rice, you know. Yeah, I, I'm interested now. I'd like to know what, if, there, if 
there's any native rice to the south. Mm. I would like to see what that looks like. Because you, if you eat, you know, the wild rice that you get in the bags in the grocery store and stuff, that's all from up north in your area, you know, in Canada and even and stuff, which is very cold climate. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, definitely, man. There's a there's a lot to it, and a lot of um, you know, I I have no idea. It's even. a staple crop of Native Americans, actually, in northern Wisconsin. Wild rice harvest. They'll go up into bogs and with a canoe, and all they do is take a. They go through the the thick stands of wild rice. They whack it with their paddle, or I think they may use a special implement. Hits the side of the canoe, and the grains fall into the boat. And that's how they get their wild rice harvest up there. So that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I would love to know more about those native strains because I know what we're dealing with now. This is kind of my thing too. Is like, as as I'm trying to implement these this natural forming method to, to grow this rice, I'd love to have a natural rice or some kind of nat- so, some influence of the more native adapted species in the variety I'm trying to grow because it's kind of like. Yeah, I'm doing all this this natural method, but I have a, a Frankenstein seed here to, to plant. You know, something that really has no intelligence in my landscape. It's probably uh, bred in Puerto Rico or something shipped yeah. in to isolate it. You know what I mean? It, well, so, you might see yield increases too if it's in its natural environment. Sure, sure, 100. You percent know, All these other different you know attributes to it too that uh, you know maybe less less disease pressure. But um, that's one thing I did do off of this crop is that again. We yielded about 8,000 pounds. I took uh, 2,000 just saved the seed. Mm-hmm. And I have it in cold storage right now. And that's what I'm going to keep collecting my seed, you know, because just, uh, you know, every, 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 every generation I get should be better adapted to my place, yeah. you, you know, and uh, through what they call it epigenetics and just the whole nine yards. So, so it's, it's going to improve, but uh, yeah. We'll see you know, where it goes. Thanks to Justin Fusilier, owner of Coastal Prairie and Nursery of Eunice, Louisiana, for his approach to no-tilling rice. To listen to more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies, please visit notillfarmer.com slash podcasts. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Biotill Cover Crop Seeds, for helping to make this no-till podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at b-o-c-o-n-n-o-r at lessonermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2413. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our No-Till Insider daily and weekly email updates and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer with Farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Brian O'Connor. Thanks for listening.